0: Hello, my name is Andrew Gary and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In-Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this episode, I speak with historian Brian Freener on the energy transition from coal to oil and the historical importance of J. Clarence Carter. June 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of field tests, confirming that Karcher's seismic reflection technique could detect and map structures capable of trapping oil. In this future-focused conversation, Brian discusses why Karcher left the oil business after this major breakthrough, the impact business had on the development of the oil industry, the creation of geophysics as a discipline, and the lessons learned for future energy transitions. The transition to oil may seem obvious now, but it was not inevitable. By studying the past energy transition from coal to oil, scientists and the public can better understand how transitions do and do not occur and better prepare for future transitions. This episode is sponsored by TGS. TGS offers a wide range of energy data and insights to meet the industry where it's at and where it's headed. TGS provides scientific data and intelligence to companies active in the energy sector. In addition to a global, extensive and diverse energy data library, TGS offers specialized services such as advanced processing and analytics alongside cloud-based data applications and solutions. To read Brian's article in June's The Leading Edge, visit segorg slash podcast. Now, our conversation. You know, Brian, it's it's pretty easy to take for granted the role of oil and gas in the modern world. June 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of field tests, confirming that J. Clair's Carter's seismic reflection technique could detect and map structures capable of strapping oil. How did this field test and technique lead to an eventual energy transition?
1: I'm not sure that the field test by itself led to an energy transition, but it was one key moment in a series of events that led to an energy transition. I think the most important aspect of that field test was that it represented the first time that geology and physics came together. These two seemingly disparate fields were united in a way to identify geological structures and consider their relationship to oil and gas. So I think that Karcher and others recognized the importance of that. And as that idea was demonstrated and verified through their test and through subsequent practice, more people recognized that they couldn't ignore the relevance of this demonstration. So the idea that this by itself precipitated the energy transition to oil and gas would be, I think, by itself kind of ahistorical. There there are a number of other factors that we could talk about that will eventually influence that transition.
0: Well, speaking of that transition, it, it still took 30 years once oil and gas you know, became a little easier to find for it to finally eclipse coal in the United States as a primary energy source. Why, why do you think it took three decades for that to happen?
1: Yeah, that, that's a question that I've been thinking about a lot and that I think is going to be at the heart of my next book project. And it's an interesting question to me for a lot of reasons. So I'd like to kind of just kind of talk through why I think it's interesting. And, and to say that I think that we need a lot more uh, work done On the multiple factors that will cause an energy transition. And so, the thing about oil and gas that I think, in retrospect, many people believe, and rightly so to some extent, is that oil and gas is a game changer. It's a game changer in humanity, it's a game changer in every aspect of American life, uh, of human life. And so, it's easy to take for granted that, you know, instantly. People recognized that oil and later natural gas, that they would be game-changing technologies, but they weren't. And I think the reasons that they weren't instantly game-changing technologies are are complex. And so I think that, you know, if you just think about it from a, a very common sense standpoint, the infrastructure to produce and distribute oil and gas, although well, developed by the early 20th century, they're still not fully developed in the ways that they will be in the post World War II period. So, as one way to kind of answer the question, then I think it's important to think about the role that oil and gas play in American life in a post World War II context versus a pre World War II context. And so infrastructure is one answer to that i think politics i think the the individual politics of oil and gas states is an important factor in in influencing how rapidly or not rapidly oil and gas rise to the fore in those localized economies and then you know national politics as well the big problem as has been written about extensively is the big problem throughout the 20s and early 30s is an oversupply of oil. And so that ultimately creates a kind of national conversation about how or whether to regulate the oil and gas industry. And so as all those kind of political and economic issues play out, I think that the way I see it is that Americans are figuring out and and the oil industry, are are figuring out how to produce oil and gas in a way that is economically viable for people and that can be done in a way in which people can take advantage of consuming the resource. So that's a, that's a kind of long answer, but I think there are even more factors that are going to influence that energy transition, and those are just some of the dominant ones.
0: You know, I want to look, you know, kind of lean on your historical perspective here. There was... You know, a company mentioned in the article that I hadn't heard of, the Geological Engineering Company, and that was formed in part by Karcher in 1920 before these field tests. What was the significance of that formation of the Geological Engineering Company?
1: Yeah, so I think that the company by itself is really significant because it demonstrates this marriage of geophysics and geology and is the really you know the first vehicle to begin pursuing that line of inquiry. So it's significant in that sense, and and it is a company that gives Karcher that platform. And so it's it's the commercial enterprise that pursues that line of inquiry.
0: You know, one of the interesting things that happened after these uh, breakthrough field tests of, of Karcher in June and July of 1921. He decided to close down the project and and leave this work. What led to to that decision for him? Well, that decision
1: to me really speaks to the difficulties of an energy transition, even when oil is is involved. So I thought that it was fascinating to think about the fact, here we have this game-changing technology, uh, reflection uh, seismology. And here we have the inventor and one of the key inventors of that technology, among others who are employed in demonstrating the utility of this game-changing technology, and yet it does not take off instantly overnight. And really what Karcher says is that the nature of the oil market at the time wasn't calling for this new technology. And why is that? Well, up until that time, oil producers found oil with geological principles alone. As I map out in my book, Finding Oil, The Nature of Petroleum Geology, they are using the anticlinal theory and they're hunting anticlines. And most of that oil that they'd found throughout what they called the mid-continent district, which is kind of Oklahoma and Northern Texas and other states. But most of the oil that they'd found in the late 19th, early 20th century was relatively close to the surface. And so oil companies were successful enough that they're finding oil with methods that they had already known about and demonstrated. And they're not interested for the time being, in spending more money in research and development in a technology that, although proven on a small scale, would require more capital for them to spend going into the future. The big problem as you're heading into the 20s is overproduction. So if you just think about it from a kind of cost-benefit analysis point of view from an oil producer's standpoint, they would say, well, why do I need to spend more money on finding more oil when we're having trouble marketing the oil that we have? So Karcher reads the writing on the wall. He he had quit his job at the Bureau of Standards to organize this company. And he, he says at one point, I think he said he gave himself one year maybe, maybe a little bit more to try to make a go of it. And when investors weren't instantly snapping up the idea. He packed up his bags and said, "You know we're we're going to close down the work and put our equipment in storage, and then he's going to go go back to work uh, as a paid employee so so short, short answer is the the glutted market kept him out of the oil business uh, out of the oil business.
0: You mentioned an individual named Everett de gellier uh, who turned out to be one of the more important figures in the oil industry in this first half of the twentieth century. What particular contributions did he make to the field and what impact did he have on Karcher himself? Yeah.
1: So DeGaulier is a super fascinating figure. There has been historical writing on him. There are actually two biographies out on him. If listeners are interested, DeGaulier is somebody who continues to be fascinating to me for some of the reasons I've alluded to previously in that he grows up in the period where petroleum geology is really just proving its utility to the oil industry he shows up at the university of oklahoma and at, at a time when his his teacher a man by the name of charles gould who's really the first geologist at the university of oklahoma and organizes their geology department He's de Gallier's teacher and Gould is in, in some respects discouraging initially, discouraging people from entering the geology discipline if they want to find a job, you know, because he, there, there was just geology had not found its way into the oil industry in a large scale at that point. De Gallier shows up right when the transitioning is transition is occurring to integrating geology as part of the oil finding prospect. And so he's really interesting to me for a lot of reasons. He he shows up, he learns geology, and then as a student, as a geology student, he gets asked to go find oil in Texas using geological principles and finds a lot of it, finds a lot of oil, and very quickly becomes a very wealthy man. His wife asks him to finish his degree, because it was important to her. And he returns to the University of Oklahoma as, quote, uh, I actually am not sure if this is a quote, but he's considered the wealthiest person on campus, far wealthier than all of his professors. But the point being is that he is incredibly brilliant, but also is very much at the right place at the right time when geology is transitioning. And all of these factors really inform his perspective such that he recognizes the utility of physics and physical principles to oil exploration. And so de Gallier's significance, I think, rests not so much in a single invention of any kind, but he's the kind of figure who recognizes these broader ideas such as the marriage of geology and physics – And he brings together the right kinds of people, physicists and geologists who exist within individual disciplines. He will even finance as he accrues wealth, he will finance experiments into geophysics and other ventures. And he recognizes that organizing these exploration processes is key into how the industry is going to function. And as a result of this kind of insight in his own business acumen, he develops significant wealth and is an influential figure in the
0: oil industry. And as a historian, just researching and, and telling the story of Jay Clarence Carter, what do you take away from his accomplishments that you kind of take away and, and help for your own work?
1: Yeah, so I, I could talk a lot about this because... Because I think that Karcher's uh, experiences and his life really speak to a number of different themes. They speak to the innovation that happened and that was necessary in order for the oil industry to grow and develop. Uh, They speak to the ability of human beings to imagine, to imagine possibilities you know, uh, to to think creatively and to consider how abstract principles can be applied in practice. And so I think it speaks to innovation of not just scientists, but it speaks to the innovation of business, uh, to, to the way that businesses have to constantly be thinking outside the box to understand what might be abstruse scientific principles and think about, know just enough about them in order to think about how they can be applied strategically for markets. And what's also really important for both Karcher and and DeGaulier and all the people who were involved in this effort is to think about how they existed in a time and place and that the options that were available to them might have been smaller on on some in some ways, you know, on the, the most basic way, you know, we know now more, we know more now perhaps than we knew then. But at the same time, that really didn't matter to them. That didn't matter to them. They were looking at the world as they knew it and they were creative and innovative nevertheless. And I think that, You know, I I constantly try to think of these examples as a historian and explain them to students, because I think that we, and students in particular, face the same kinds of challenges. In fact, I would say the exact same kinds of challenges that people faced in the past. They have to figure out, they have to look at their physical world and figure out what they know and what they don't know and learn about the things that they want to know more about. And if they want to make it in the business world or, or frankly, in any endeavor, you have to kind of balance figuring out what you don't know with what you do know, and then, um, you know, make things happen through perseverance. And in Karcher talks about this, he, worked as a young man in Edison's invention factory. And he said that was the most important lesson that he learned from Thomas Edison was just simply the idea of perseverance. And so when I read something like that, you know, firsthand out of Karcher's mouth, I I think about my own experiences. And I, and again, I, I think to uh, what I would tell students as well, and it might sound like a sophisticated arcane technology, geophysics, and it is in some respects, but if you want to achieve anything in life, you have to persevere.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing some of the characters that, that come out in, in this time period and in your article. And, and of course, SEG honors the memory of Karcher and his contributions to geophysics with the J. Klinger's Karcher Award. However, as your article highlights, a lot of people contributed to his work. How do you hold the contributions of Karcher along with these numerous individuals, companies and governments that helped facilitate his discovery? The starting
1: point for this article was that monument itself. You know, I have seen that monument for many years. I used to organize an oil and gas bus tour of Oklahoma City, and the monument located on the outskirts of Oklahoma City would be a, a logical stop. And so, I, I've literally taken taken bus loads of people to this monument and talked about it in the past. And usually, in that forum, I only have you know maybe. 10 or 15 minutes to talk about it. And I always wonder, you know, do, what do people really understand when they see that monument? And so to me, my, all monuments do this, right? They, they're monuments. They're monuments to a particular person, place, idea, or moment in historical time. And so as a result, they present a fairly focused story fairly focused unified story and to me history particularly the history of energy transitions are more complicated than a single person place or idea so so to me i use that monument as a starting place to think more broadly about how and why did we transition to oil if in fact it wasn't a foregone conclusion what were the other factors involved and so you know i think that carter is a good starting point but you know The the oil industry exists at least in the United States, at least in beginning in 1859 with Drake's well in Pennsylvania. And so looking at that monument, then I just kind of step back and I ask myself, what role does Karcher play in this? And what about the role of some of these other other people that the monument doesn't capture? What about DeGaulle Who who hire ends up, you know, hiring uh, Karcher? Isn't it kind of ironic? That Karcher in the in the images that are published along with that article, we have Karcher in the images. But it's ironic that there were people like De Gallier. There was another practitioner from Germany who is uh, Ludger Mintrup, who is performing a, another kind of seismology, refraction seismology, who isn't directly involved in the Karcher experiments, but you know, I just asked myself, what, what Karcher, how did Mintrop and his efforts influence the thinking or perhaps influence the thinking of Karcher? And then the article spends a bit of time also talking about World War I. And if you go back to World War I and look at the role of Karcher and others, his mentor at the Bureau of Standards, Charles Bazzoni, Mintrop himself, who was experimenting with physics in World War I in the in the process known as sound ranging. You know, it seems like World War I and all of the practitioners internationally, the French, the British, the Germans, everybody is beginning at that point to think about how to understand physical properties of the earth and manipulate them and record them in order to generate information. And so, So again, I think Karcher is a good starting point for understanding the impact of reflection seismology. But I think he also is emblematic of a broader shift of all of these people in these countries in thinking about the physical properties of the earth and the role they're going to play in human beings interacting with their natural environments throughout the course of the 20th century.
0: Well, lastly, here I just kind of want to get your your thoughts as a student of history. Where do you think exploration and geophysics is situated as a field and discipline in this current moment?
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know. I know that in my research, I see the innovation and advent of digital imaging as as a real game changing technology. And I think that's not, there's nothing revelatory about that statement. I mean, I think anybody in geophysics understands that. Um, and probably any member, uh, uh any historian or person with a historical interest understands that too, who's not in geophysics. And, and to, to be honest with you, my, uh, inquiries kind of stop at that point because it gets so complex Uh, the field of geophysics does at that point. It's difficult for me as a non-practitioner. It's difficult for me to follow. But I would say that, you know, 3D and 4D seismic imaging is, I think, another step on this continuum of, throughout the 20th century, of geophysicists developing very sophisticated science and technologies to image and to comprehend the subsurface earth. And with every advent of technology that has occurred really since, since the, the period we're talking about, since reflection seismology, uh, techniques have become so sophisticated that human beings have demonstrated, uh, the application of geophysics not just to the earth sciences but to uh, many other many other uh, fields uh, archaeologists are using geophysics now to understand archaeological environments uh, before digging begins or to determine whether digging should begin and i mean there are so many applications i can't speak to them all so i guess i would just say that it's a complex science most people don't seem to most lay people most lay people don't seem to recognize how sophisticated it is and that it has a very extensive history and so so that would be my best answer i would just say that things are very very sophisticated they're very complex but i but i would argue that as sophisticated as they've become and and as much oil and natural gases have been released onto the market now it's interesting to me that despite the sophistication, the oil industry is still influenced, if not governed, by the broader issues of economics, supply and demand, politics, that were influencing the industry at Karcher's time. These are still considerations that go into the functioning of the oil and gas industry and into any energy transition that might occur or that people would like to occur. And so I think it's important to try and talk about these historical contexts perhaps as a guide to the present and the future.
0: Well Brian you read you wrote a fascinating article looking at Carter's contributions in the leading edge and, and I encourage people to read it. The pictures are always nice, but it's just a lot of fascinating content in there. Thanks for taking the time out to share a little bit more of of what didn't quite get in the article and best of luck uh, as you're writing a new book. That's exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. To receive the latest episodes first, follow Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary of 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bacomgen, Kathy Gamble, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.